Matthew chapter 17. We are um, right in the middle of our series on Leviticus, and um, I thought it would be a good place just to interject a, a message here as we're looking forward to fall ministry starting up soon, and a wonderful story here about how we can uh, carry on in gospel ministry uh, together by the power of God. And uh, this is a wonderful story that illustrates and highlights that truth. Matthew 17. I want you to notice that uh, Matthew 17 starts with the story of the transfiguration. It's where Jesus was up on the mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John and uh, was transfigured before, before them so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And Moses and Elijah appeared to them and talking with, with Jesus. So this is... Um, a very high point in Jesus' ministry. And as he comes down now from the mountain, you can think of sort of a parallel here between Jesus and Moses. Remember, Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God. When he came down, his face was shining. He'd been in the presence of glory. And he comes down to a scene of great defeat and uh, um, unbelief as Israel has given themselves over to pagan worship. Well, Jesus comes down to a scene of defeat as, and unbelief as well. And so let's pick it up at verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your teaching ministry as you came to rescue us from ignorance, blindness, unbelief, and death. And we thank you, Lord, that in these words you reveal to us the paths of joy and peace and fruitfulness. And so give us ears to hear today, Jesus. We want to hear your voice. Give us hearts to embrace these truths and apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is August 1 already, and uh, that means that we are rapidly approaching fall, uh, the fall schedule as a church, and um, we've been through a, a long year and so of, of COVID. Uh, that's ongoing, of course, but by the God's grace, we, we are able to, to move forward, and, and it feels like we're on the cusp of some exciting ministry. I'm so, so delighted that... Um, Adrian and John have both arrived, and uh, John Terrell to start up uh, the work at Living his, his ministry at Living Hope, and Adrian Crum to start up his ministry uh, in our with our youth and evangel and and in evangelism. Uh, so this fall we're going to be restarting Sunday school. We're going to be getting our Wednesday evening programs fired up again, small groups going again, uh, being the church, ministering, learning, growing, serving, all that is ahead of us. And uh, the session's got a meeting this Tuesday night. We're going to be talking about a uh, building uh, program. Uh, is this the time? 
and for the Lord, uh, that the Lord's calling us to move forward in that. And what that's, what is that going to look like as God continues to add to us? So we have exciting, we have exciting things ahead of us, big things ahead of us. And um, there's an important lesson here for us to learn as Jesus speaks to us. Uh, there's things here that are critical for us to understand if we're going to actually do ministry in the favor of God and in the power of God and, and that bears fruit for the glory of God. Uh, at first glance, this looks like just another healing story. A boy is demon-possessed and uh, Jesus miraculously, wonderfully casts the demon out. But it is not primarily a healing story of, uh, of uh, the sick boy. It's a, it's a healing story of the sick faith of the disciples. The, the thing that is to stand out to us this morning is the disciples utter impotence in the face of this very real need. And Jesus is going to address that, and he, and he addresses our inability. Jesus calls us uh, to do things that we can't do. He calls us to be transformed in our own hearts. He calls us to be uh, agents of transformation in our homes. He calls us to be um, ambassadors of transformation by the power of the gospel in our community. We are not up to this. We're not able to do these things in our strength. But Jesus, of course, is and calls us then to do ministry believing in him. So the fundamental question that's in front of us in this text this morning is how uh, can Jesus' disciples then and now fulfill our calling and minister the gospel in this broken world in a way that bears fruit for the glory of God? How do we do this? Well, let's pick it up at the beginning where we, we meet a, a man, with, who, a desperate man, who has a, a desperately ill, demon-possessed son. Jesus has made his way down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he comes on this scene of weakness and unbelief. When they came to the crowd, the man comes up to Jesus and kneeling before him says, Lord, have mercy on my son. If you're, if you're a dad, you can only imagine. He's watching as his poor little boy. We don't know how old, but, but probably um, between 5 and 12, somewhere in there, most likely to, to be named this. Um, this, this, poor, this poor little guy is... is his life is, is ruined by this demon that has possessed him. And, and the demon uh, throws him into fire and into water, trying to kill him. Imagine if that's your son. And so this man is, is desperate. And it's a scene of just the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in Israel. Here are God's people, and yet the powers of hell are running rampant. And so Jesus is needed. Um, and we have, again, against the backdrop of the demon's power, the disciples' impotence. So he then says to Jesus, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jesus had taken three of the disciples up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John. The rest <coughs> apparently were left some location very nearby and to wait for Jesus to come back. And, and while they were waiting there, a ministry need presents itself. This man comes understanding that they are Jesus' disciples and, and believing that being Jesus' disciples, they would have some assistance. They would be able to help him. And it's clear from the text that they tried. So the man says, I, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not. But they tried. So we're not told exactly how they tried, but, but it most likely, they did what they saw Jesus doing. When Jesus um, would cast out demons, he would command the demons to leave, and they would leave. And so that's probably what they did. They, they, they gathered around, and, and somebody stepped up and says, I command you, come out. 
Nothing. And maybe, uh, you know, Andrew comes up and says, uh, you know, Philip, you, you didn't do it right, obviously. Let me, let me try. In, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. Nothing. Maybe somebody else tries. And, and uh, it is a really embarrassing, pathetic scene as Jesus' disciples um, are completely unequipped, unable to accomplish this task. And it happens in front of a crowd. People are watching. It's perplexing. It's embarrassing. Uh, it is high, deeply disappointing. It's not a great moment in the annals of discipleship. Uh, the church often looks like this, doesn't it? The church often seems to be bumbling about, unable to have any real impact in the community around them or even on the, the people within the congregation. Just, just seems to be swept along by the tides of culture and, and the, uh, the whirlpools of sin. Disciples of Jesus are supposed to have ability to engage with evil and to apply the powers of heaven. Well, these men, uh, they have failed miserably. And, and Jesus responds in verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Uh, at first glance, that seems a little out of character for Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the compassionate Savior. His heart goes out to the crowds. And yet, something about this scene irritates him. He's grieved. How long do I have to do this? Parents, you've likely felt this with your children. How many times do I have to tell you, don't, whatever? Well, you have to tell them often, and it becomes wearisome becomes a burden. Well, Jesus feels that a thousand times over as, as, um, as he looks at the scene in front of him. And the reason you see that he's so grieved is because what he sees is unbelief. He, the Son of God, standing in the midst of God's people, and he's surrounded by unbelief. He's not talking to pagans. He's not somewhere in Rome or Ephesus. He's in Israel. He's He's in the midst of God's people, of all the people in the world who have reasons to believe. These are the people. They got a whole Old Testament full of God's saving acts, full of promises. They have 2,000 years of evidences to bolster their faith. Of all the people in the world, Israel ought to be defined by bold, confident faith. And what Jesus sees is a pistos, no faith, no faith. And it's a, it's a perversion, it's a twisted thing, it's, it's fundamentally not the way it's supposed to be. And he groans under the weight of it. How long am I to be with you? It's a burden for Jesus to live in the midst of such horrifying, twisted unbelief. It's a suffering for him to endure this kind of perversion. It's a great reminder to us that unbelief actually is sin. We treat it as though it were not. Unbelief is sin because God has given all the evidences that people need, right, in creation and in Scripture. So the things of God have clearly been revealed. The divine nature and the power of God clearly manifest in the things that he's made. 
And yet when people refuse to, to uh, acknowledge that evidence, well, it's sin. And the same for us, of course. Well, Jesus is a savior of compassion. And, and so in spite of the unbelief, Jesus moves forward to minister. Bring him here to me. He's willing to pour grace on this poor, needy boy. And so we read verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And so in the face of the disciples' complete failure, Jesus now stands with complete ability and power. With just a word, this defiant demon is immediately defeated and forced to give way to the power of God. It's a, it's, a, it's a small victory on the scale of things, right? It's just one healed little boy in a whole world full of brokenness and demonic powers. But this one healing is one more clear evidence, clear sign that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the kingdom of, of heaven has invaded the kingdom of this world, that the the, the the armies of heaven, in a sense, are on the march in the person of Jesus Christ. The powers of the kingdom being unleashed in Jesus. And so this miracle is, again, one of, of many that, that deliverance is on its way. God has not abandoned his world. The forces of hell are going to be beaten back conclusively and decisively and eternally. We do not live in a eternally broken world. It's going to be made new in every aspect. This miracle is evidence of it. This little radically healed boy is just one sign that one day all things are going to be radically made new. And so here in, in the miracle, the first tragedy is dealt with. The boy is healed. The father is is overjoyed. How could he not be? Something profoundly wrong has been made, made, made right. Now Jesus deals with the second tragedy, which is the impotence of his disciples. The uh, disciples, verse 19, come to Jesus in private and asked, why could we not cast it out? They're a little embarrassed, I'm sure, and they're perplexed. Remember, they had been able to cast out demons previously. When Jesus sent out his, uh, the, the twelve as a mission force, Luke chapter 9, he gave them authority to heal diseases and to cast out demons. They had the, the authority and the power to do it, and they did. In fact, when they returned, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It was a great mission trip. And they came back overjoyed, and, but, but now they're perplexed. Now they failed. What went wrong? What, what did we do wrong? Why, why weren't we able to cast it out? And Jesus' words, very short, right to the heart of it, he replied, because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. While the Israelites have no faith, apistos, the disciples have little faith. They believe but their faith is little. And because it's little, they lack the spiritual ability, the spiritual power to accomplish the healing. Now again, that's a word that, that we need to hear. One of the things that God, I believe, has to continually do in the church is to wake us up 
to the mission. We can so easily get comfortable doing church and stop asking the question, what are the fruits that are taking place that could only be happening by the power of God? There's no other explanation. But that God is present, God is at work, and God, we're seeing and watching God uh, do things by His power through the gospel for His glory that we could not possibly do. See, we, we, we do live, friends, in a world that's overrun with need. And we can easily feel powerless to bring about gospel healing. What do you do as a church in the face of an increasingly secularizing culture like, our, like ours? And why does the church so often seem powerless to stem any of what we see happening? Why are we so ineffective in transforming our world? And, and why are we so often ineffective in gaining transformation in our own life? Well, Jesus tells us one of the key reasons here. We have little faith. We have little faith. One commentator writes, We tend to locate our problems in less deep locations in our temper, our habits, our lust, moods, etc., when in fact the root of all this bitter fruit is our failure to believe God. Now what does it mean when Jesus says little faith? Well, we, we have other examples where Jesus rebuked the disciples for exactly the same thing. For instance, uh, boys and girls, do you remember the story of Peter walking on the water? Remember they were in the boat and they saw Jesus and he was walking on the water and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you. And Jesus says, well, come on. And so Peter gets out of the boat, and Peter is walking to Jesus, walking on the waves. And boys and girls, then what happens? Peter looks down, and what does Peter see? Peter sees water, and he realizes he's walking on water, and he's never done this before. And he begins to sink because he begins to be filled with fear, and Jesus reaches out his hand and do you remember what Jesus said to him? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's a wonderful story. Because I was walking on water. I don't know how to swim. No, little faith. Little faith, Peter. There's no reason to doubt. We have another example in Matthew 16. The disciples thought that Jesus was mad at them because um, he was talking about yeast of the Pharisees, bread, bread and, and, uh, and somebody said, he's mad because we didn't bring bread. And they decided, yep, that's what's going on. And Jesus, hearing their thoughts, says to them, he rebukes them, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? Little faith. Luke 12, Jesus taught the disciples not to be anxious about anything. Not what they wear, what they eat, uh, nothing at all. Because he says, if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, in every case, little faith is the failure to apply the evidences of God's power and faithfulness in the past to present reality. Little faith is the failure to apply what you say that you believe. You see, faith for Jesus is a very practical reliance on the demonstrated power and provision of God. Faith is believing the promises of God because God said them. 
It's a wholehearted trust that is applied into the reality of life. So Jesus says in verse 20, I truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, Jesus' words can seem contradictory. Why does he um, point to the mustard seed? Uh, and the answer is because it's the very smallest seed. It's just commonly accepted sort of as that's the littlest seed, the smallest seed. So Jesus seems to be saying that um, you, you men of little faith, if you just had small faith, nothing would be impossible for you. Well, how is little faith different from small faith? It's a critical distinction. Little faith, as we've said, is unapplied faith. It's failing to trust in what you believe is true. If you would have asked Peter, Peter, do you believe that Jesus has the power to keep you walking on the water? Do you believe, do you believe that Jesus has the power to keep you there? Peter would have said, of course he does. And Peter would be sincere. He did believe that. That's why when he starts to sink, he says, Lord, save me. He believes Jesus can save him. The failure, you see, was Peter's... The failure was not applying what he believes to be true about Jesus to his context, his situation. He begins to doubt. And Jesus says, Why? I didn't change. Why did you doubt? Did, did the disciples believe that Jesus was able to miraculously provide bread? Well, of course they believed it. They saw it happen twice. They just didn't apply that knowledge to their current situation. When people are anxious about what they'll eat or what they'll drink or clothes that they'll wear, when, when, when anxiety and, and fear grip our lives, and if you would ask, right, someone would ask you, well, don't you believe that God is like all powerful? Well, of course I believe that. Well, don't, don't you believe that God has promised to take care of you? Well, yeah, I believe that. Well, then Jesus will say, Why? You see, little faith is the failure to take the things that we profess to be true and apply them to the actual context, situation in which we find ourselves. And see, little faith, then, it's unapplied faith and it's powerless faith. What's the functional difference between a Christian with little faith and an unbeliever who has no faith at all? I mean, functionally, what's the difference? There's very little difference. Both are going to be frightened. Both are going to be filled with anxiety. Both are going to rely on their own resources. Both are going to be given to self-protection. Both are going to be addicted to comfort. Both are going to be powerless to engage the evil in their own lives or to show grace to those around them. Because as long as faith remains these intellectual things that you assent to, without becoming the realities you stand on, well, it, it doesn't have any power up here. They're just things that you ascend to. But when it gets down to the, the, the gritty details of actually living your life, well, those things are going to kind of fade away in the mist. And you're going to be back to living your unbelieving lifestyle. <clears throat> this is an admonition to all of us. 
We can easily believe that because we have good theology and right doctrines. That, that means, right, we score high on the discipleship scale. Well, it, it all matters. The only thing that matters, really, faith expressing itself through love. Uh, the thing that matters is, are we actually standing on, applying the things that we say that we believe so that it changes how we think and how we live, how we engage with people? It's very interesting, in Mark's account of this, of this story, he tells us about the father who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can, you know, help out, if you can. And Jesus says, if I can, and he says to the father, all things are possible to the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, that's our prayer. Lord, we, we do believe. We need help with our unbelief. We need, we need help so that we apply the things that we say to be true to the reality of our life. Well, what's that going to look like? And we'll wrap with this. Two things I'd like to point out. What will, what will a life where the things that we ascend to are actually functioning and we're standing on them and applying them to the reality of our life, what will that look like? It looked like prayer and it looked like power. I say prayer because though it's not, Matthew doesn't include it in his account, Mark does in his. So when the disciples ask Jesus, uh, why could we not cast it out? Matthew says, little faith. Jesus, uh, Mark says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And it's the same thing. You see, prayer is faith in action. Prayer, disciple prayer, is applying what we know and believe about God to the realities of our current life. It's not just saying, Lord, help me with this. Prayer is confessing, God, you are the sovereign God. Every molecule in the universe must obey your commands. And God, you have made wonderful promises to us that you will never leave us and you will bless us and you will give us everything that we need. You promise to give us our daily bread. You promise that in your word. You are, you are our shepherd. We lack nothing. You see, you take all these things you know to be true and then you apply it to your context. That's what prayer does. So you see, the, the disciples had most likely been attempting to perform the miracle by commanding the demon when what was required was asking God. Relying on God's strength. Did they believe that God had the power to cast out demons? Well, of course they did. They just weren't applying that faith to the situation at hand. It's exactly the same for us. Do we believe that God has the power to transform our homes? Well, of course we do. Are we applying that truth? Do we believe that God has the power to transform our community? Well, obviously God has the power to transform our community. Are we moving forward in ministry as though that were true? Do we believe that the gospel really is the power of God unto salvation? Well, of course we believe that. Is the gospel what we turn to in our own personal life, in our, in our homes, in our ministry together? And do we do that in prayer then? You see, praying faith is the kind of faith that accomplishes these mighty things because praying faith is resting on the power of God. So Paul says, I can do all things through him who does what? Who strengthens me. And that's our last point. It'll look like power. So Jesus says, 
If, if you just have that true faith, even though it's small, if it's true, if it's actually applying the truths of God to the reality of life, if you say to that mountain, move from there to there, it will do so. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, Jesus is clearly not recommending a, a mountain-moving ministry. It's a metaphor, but it's an incredible metaphor. You see, the disciples are going to do things vastly more impressive than move mountains. The disciples are, by the power of God, going to transform human hearts. They're going to raise the dead, literally as well as spiritually. They're going to see the gospel radically transform lives in the face of an aggressive pagan culture. They're going to see saints brought from death to life and out of darkness into light. They're going to see churches planted in the hearts of thoroughly pagan cities like Ephesus and Rome. They're going to see the kingdom of God advance with power through their gospel ministry. Small faith, applying what we believe to be true to the reality of our context, is going to look like power. It's going to look like God doing things, God accomplishing things by his power. And that's what excites me about our future as a church, about our future as individuals. Because the same prescription is available to us. Jesus has identified the problem, but as we prayerfully rely on all that Christ has accomplished for us, all that he has promised to us, as we apply that to the reality of our life personally, to the reality of our ministry together as a church, our life as a church, nothing's, nothing's impossible. Did Jesus really mean nothing will be impossible for you? Does he mean that we could plant more churches than ever, we ever dared to imagine? Does he, does he mean that marriages that are fundamentally broken could be actually really put back together so that we don't just have to shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's just the way it is? Does he mean that, that we personally could be transformed? Could we see the powers of the kingdom of God at work in our life and in our church through the ministry of the gospel in our day? Absolutely. That's what he means impossible things, things that we could never possibly do by our strength, Jesus promises to do through his, as we believe, as we believe, as we believe all that Christ has accomplished for us. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you, and you just look at the brokenness of your own life, Jesus calls you to believe in his power. Believe in the gospel that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been freely given to you as you confess your sin and that you are accepted among the beloved because of it. Believe. Don't just have an intellectual assent to the gospel. Apply it to your heart. Believe that the work that God has begun in you, he will carry on to completion. He's promised it. Apply it. Believe that Christ is able to present you one day without spot and with great joy before the presence of his Father in heaven. Believe it. Believe that God is able to do through us more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. That, friends, is the faith that Jesus calls us to, the faith that he's worthy of, the faith that accomplishes things for his glory, by his power, and for our joy. May God give it to us. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that... You give us this word. Thank you, Jesus, that you speak to us. Lord, I just pray that we would take this word to heart, that we would consider what our life would look like if we applied what we profess in our heads to the reality of our hands and our feet, how we think and move and live and speak. 
the circumstances we find ourselves in as individuals, the context that we find ourselves in as a church. Lord, it, it's critically important that we understand these things if we're to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we will ever live lives that bear fruit, much fruit for the glory of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, convict us of our unbelief. And, Lord, that today and this week, we would begin applying the things that we say we believe. That God is good. That God is faithful. That God is mighty. That God is present. That we belong to him. That nothing in our life has happened by accident. That nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And so, Lord, that, that trust and confidence could replace fear and anxiety. And, Father, that we would then have the joy of seeing you do what we can't do as we pray, as we believe, as we wait, as we trust in you. And then, Lord, have the joy of seeing other people be brought in by our witness, our words, to come and walk this beautiful road of discipleship with us. Jesus, please do this in our midst, in our proud hearts. Oh, God, break us down so that we do what we do in the strength that you give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to the word this morning, uh, singing together, by faith we see the hand of God. By faith we live, by faith we walk. Let's commit ourselves to it. Let's stand together and sing.
want to encourage you to take what you've heard today and apply it. Uh, that it won't do any good to say that was true, um, that, wasn't, that was good. Um, it, it only matters if we apply it. And so just, uh, I would encourage you today to take some time to just sit down uh, with you and your life and uh, ask yourself, where does, where does my little faith need to become true faith, applied faith, where I'm trusting in the Lord in this very specific instance and then praying for God to show his strength in this very specific way. Apply the truth. Um, that's where the power is. That's where God gets the glory. That's where we get the joy. And now as you go, receive the benediction that God gives to his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.